Across America and around the world, famous vintners and favorite destinations. We share the stories behind the wines. Welcome to Vintage, hosted by the voice of wine, Brian Bushlack. This episode, we continue our visit to Oregon's Dundee Hills, the western edge of this sub-AVA, just north of Dayton at the intersection of the Dundee Hills and the Yamhill-Carlton District. Stoller Family Estate, named Best Tasting Room in All of America by USA Today and their Reader's Choice Awards last September. And you can see why and follow along with us at StollerFamilyEstate.com. You know, we've never played favorites or the ratings game on this show, but I will say that this winery and this setting rank right up there with the best experiences, not only in Oregon, but any wine region in the world. Bill Stoller grew up nearby on the family farm before becoming one of Oregon's most successful business leaders. He bought the vineyard property from his cousin, transforming what was the family turkey farm into one of the most gorgeous settings in the world of wine. Now, two summers ago, on our last trip, we sabered Stoller's first vintage of bubbles. And on this visit, it was nice to spend more time with associate winemaker Kate Payne-Brown, who works alongside Stoller's veteran head winemaker, Melissa Burr. And really nice to get her thoughts on collaborating with Melissa at a winery where there really are no limits. You know, we have a really good working relationship. I think um, she asked me to come on and help uh, really oversee the reserve and the legacy programs. And so it's incredibly collaborative. What we get a chance to do is have these aha moments, especially when we're blending and coming together to make decisions where we can have this synergistic uh moment where we can say, okay, this is what we're going to do. And it doesn't always work out that way, but um, it's pretty great when two different personalities can come together and figure out how to make something work really well. What's different about each of your personalities? That's a really good question. I think Melissa, um, she's been in the industry for a very long time, and so she has been on this property for a very long time, and she knows nearly every inch of it, I would say. Um, And I think her sense of history here um, is so different from mine. So when I'm bringing up questions of how we should do things and she's providing input as well, I think that's where our personalities tend to um, really shine because she has a longer view of where we are now and so I'm kind of asking what we're what we're up to what we're going to do and what's the next step so I think we all we're both creative in our own way um, and then when we come together hopefully that's amplified and it will showcase in the wines it sounds like obviously her expertise and experience here on property and and knowing every inch of it that's awesome but you bring a different perspective right so she may have done something a certain way for a period of time but then you know you offer maybe a different perspective 
Absolutely. I think uh, and it's good to not make wines in a vacuum. I think that's what's so great about having a larger team is that we get a chance to all showcase our strengths. So somebody might have an idea and then we come together and uh, it's really a lot of our decisions are made by committee, um, which, is, which is often challenging, right? Um, but I think that's makes it for a stronger, more understanding team because we can come together and say, um, okay, you're really good at this. You're really good at this. Let's figure out how to make it work. And so um, I think for me, um, coming in and saying, let's, you know, do something one way or another um, is often, it's often received well. But then, you know, I think by committee, when we're all coming together and thinking about it, we're just trying to figure out the logistics of it all so you i mean you kind of have to have thick skin right i mean you're creative Mm -hmm. you've got your own way of doing things melissa has hers everybody has theirs no matter what um what's that like when you know you come together and, and i guess describe how you are stylistically and then you know how you blend that with other winemakers or others that offer their insight stylistically i think that i use a lot of feeling words probably um i'm pretty i have a science i have two science degrees and so i think initially when i started in this career i was far more linear than i am now um and now i can use my experience to be a little bit more intuitive and so i think that is certainly a strength and provides more creativity uh for me stylistically it's interesting because i i don't necessarily always rely solely on the numbers i want to think about wines from a holistic perspective so thinking about you know when we're picking it and also thinking about the the programs that i manage it's really the reserves and legacies that are built for longevity so again looking forward so looking at this wine right now it's our 2016 reserve so in 2016 it was an early vintage we had to pick on acidity we had to think about wines in a different way than maybe we would have in a cooler vintage so making these decisions but also know that it's not going to be released we're now in 2019 so this wine has to show well you know two and a half three years later as we're releasing it so I think having that idea and kind of the bigger picture and looking at wines in a way um, certainly for me informs my decisions. That leads me to my next question of being analytical, but then the more you are in the business, the more, I guess, intuitive you become. Mm -hmm. And it's Oregon. So unlike other wine regions where it's really the pretty much the same thing every year when it comes to harvest, right? You, you can count on things. You can't count on any, anything here. And so I would imagine that they, that intuitive nature grows, uh, the longer you are in the Oregon industry. Absolutely. I was just saying the other day that I think in order to make wine here in Oregon, you have to be of um, an adventurous spirit because things are never the same. And actually, Melissa and I were talking about it yesterday that, uh, you know, she's been at this property for now 16 years and she's never had the same vintage repeat itself. And I've been in the valley since 2007. And I think there's elements of similarity throughout each vintage and I think building upon that each year provides this uh, this library in your brain that kind of helps you 
inform be informed in terms of how you're going to make your decision but certainly you can't count on what the vintage is going to be like every year yeah. we're right now it's we're just seeing a little bit of bud break so it's a little it's maybe a couple weeks later a week later than the last year so now we're looking forward to harvest and so who knows what's going to happen in between now and then it's going to continue to stay pretty cool mm-hmm. it's going to warm up and we're going to be harvesting in august I hope not. I'm not ready yet. But I think we are, yeah, everything will change. If I know anything about being in Oregon, it will change on a dime. So you have to be pretty agile. Yeah, and you not only have to be agile, but you embrace that, right? And so, yeah, I mean, it, it could be the hottest August on record, and then we get a week of rain the first week of September, and everything you thought you knew up to that point really goes out the window, right? Absolutely. And I think with experience comes that, okay, everything's going to be okay. You have to make decisions, and you have to be responsible in those decisions because we are the stewards of the land. We have a great responsibility that Bill Stoller puts on us. But we also have to um, – what I do know is that it's all going to be fine. We can we can make it fine. So um, even in a year um, that we've had, like 2010, 2011, that have been incredibly cold, and we – I think collectively as a, an industry freaked out, uh, we look at those wines now and remember how difficult it was, but we also remember, we also think about how beautiful those wines are. So I think sometimes in those hardest moments is what produces the most magnificent wines. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's just me reflecting on my hard work being showcasing into something beautiful, but I don't know. I think so. I mean, because you make a great wine in a tough year, I mean, you, I think, certainly appreciate it more. And, mm-hmm. and we've had many of those years where initially uh, the initial reviews may be, you know, not so good. But then two or three years later, then, hey, people learn to appreciate that vintage maybe even more. So speaking of the wines here in uh, Chardonnay and Glass right now, it's been for lack of a better word, pretty cool to see what's happened with Oregon Chardonnay over the past five to ten years, a varietal that really was ignored for for a long time, but is so natural for Oregon, right, if it's done correctly. And now we're seeing it uh, really come into its own, aren't we? Absolutely. I'm a huge fan of Chardonnay. Um, I will go out there and proselytize the good word of Chardonnay any day. Um, and I think it's finally getting the recognition that it's due, right, here in Oregon. I mean, Chardonnay is one of those wonderful varietals that we see out in the world. And But Oregon Chardonnay was kind of the, you know, younger um, sister of of Pinot Noir. And uh, I think we are now figuring out our own style. We don't have to be California Chardonnay. We don't have to be Burgundy. And the same goes to say with Pinot Noir, but I think we are figuring out what we like and what, um, and we are creating what we like, essentially. So we're being responsible in terms of picking the fruit earlier in order to retain acidity, perhaps, if that's the style that you want to make. But I think um, Chardonnay is now becoming something where we can say this is a beautiful wine again we're drinking this particular wine which is our current release two and a half years later after it was bottled so it's something that's meant for longevity they're beautiful wines and they're going to last a long time so we have people downloading this all around the world from california to i mean you name it no pressure yeah no pressure (laughs) so sum it up for for those that maybe haven't tasted Oregon Chardonnay might be used to California or 
you know, other wine regions. What is it specifically, if you had to sum it up about your Chardonnay, particularly an Oregon Chardonnay, that is different or unique than other Chardonnays from around the world? I think... Right, I, don't, I think right now Oregon is in a point where we're showcasing Chardonnay that is very site-specific. I think we are at a point where we are saying this is our Chardonnay from our particular vineyard or somebody else down in the Willamette Valley will say this is our Chardonnay from this particular vineyard. So it's not like blanketed. I don't want to say that California just makes California Chardonnay, but for the longest time what was most popular from California were these bigger Chardonnays that were riper with a lot of oak and full mallow. So they were bigger wines and so I think we are now being able to honor and um, really own the fact that we have 60 acres of Chardonnay on our property and so we have some older vine material so from they're 20 years old and so we're showcasing what how beautiful this varietal is on our hill and I think for us uh, we have volcanic soil it is we tend to have bright acidity but also some nice concentration um, and also a really rounder palate so but to balance kind of where we are which is in the southernmost tip of the Dundee Hills we have to be really mindful about when we pick um, but we also what we do with our reserve Chardonnay is we do um, indigenous ferments so basically um, in about 20% new oak the rest is neutral so we'd be really mindful each one of those barrels is like this own microcosm there's their own thing going on and each individual uh, its own personality um, so all of that comes together and uh, provides something that's to me, really magical. So, again, because we are in the southernmost of the Dundee Hills, uh, really want to make sure that for us, we don't go through full mallow. So, we want that bright acidity to kind of show through and um, have something that's rounded out by thyme on leaves, thyme and oak, and something that's really going to have a really lovely palette later on. How big is that vineyard? And are there any variations in that vineyard in soil type? in elevation that makes one portion of the vineyard different than the other. Absolutely. We have a lot of different uh, microclimates, mesoclimates. uh, And I think, I mean, we certainly see that in our Chardonnay uh, and definitely in our Pinot Noirs as we'll talk in a little bit. But um, yeah, each pocket of the vineyard has its own kind of personality. And so for our, um, for our Chardonnay, we've got some younger vine down on the bottom of the hill, about 250 feet. And then we've got some Chardonnay, about 400, 400 500 feet. Um, and those present, not only are their, uh, their vine age is very different, but they present themselves very differently. The the vines at the bottom of the hill have already started flowering. So we haven't seen that yet in the older vine sections yet, as we were hoping it will happen soon. Uh, but most of our soils are um, are dory volcanic soil, and then at the bottom of the hill, we have a little bit of a shift where we have some like Zula floodplain kind of deep fertile soils. Um, it's not always conducive, but it for um, you have a little bit more vigor in those sections. But we really have um, some different kind of textures um, from those wines. But for the most part, we've got some deep volcanic soils going on so as far as chardonnay spectrum goes here how many different chardonnays are you making and i mean what goes into the i mean if you can sum that up what what's the difference in those chardonnays 
So, you know, somebody was just asking me that the other day, and we make quite a few different Chardonnays. And I think because we have 60 acres of Chardonnay on our property, we have a lot of material to work with and thereby showcase all the different styles of Chardonnay that we can potentially make. We have um, a stainless steel Chardonnay. Uh, it is picked on the earlier side. Um, it's fermented in stainless steel. Uh, it's very linear. It doesn't see any oak or any malactic fermentation. Then we have a reserved Chardonnay, which we are tasting right now. This is uh, taken from older vine sections on our property. It is, uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, hand-picked, pressed, uh, and then put into neutral barrel with about 20% new oak, um, native ferment, a little bit of batonnage, um, and then no, or about 50% malactic conversion. Uh, this stays in barrel for about 12 months, and then in six months, um, in stainless steel tanks to let the wines marry and come together. Uh, we make a concrete Chardonnay. Um, in 2010, we got a concrete egg um, that we made just about 180 gallons of concrete Chardonnay that would usually go into our reserve. And then in 2015, we bought these beautiful concrete cubes um, that we make another club-exclusive wine, which is our club-exclusive Chardonnay uh, not a very creative name, <laughs> but we love it. It's specifically for our club, so therefore it suits it. It's appropriate, um, it's appropriate right? right? Um, so it goes into our concrete cubes now, and almost all of what we make from those concrete cubes go into this particular skew. What I like about concrete is that uh, it provides a roundness and a minerality to the wine. So there's not the toastiness or the oak influence. It's just it's, there's this bright acidity, and then also this roundness and this minerality kind of lifts the primary fruit that I find incredibly compelling. Uh, and then we do Elsie's, which we have here. Um, Elsie's is our uh, our legacy to Chardonnay. It's named after Bill Stoller's aunt. And it was really, we were asked in 2014 to make a site-specific Chardonnay, a small blend. And so we ended up coming up with this blend. And it was so fantastic. I think we were asked to make only about f- two barrels. And it was just so lovely that I think we made the equivalent of... Uh, four barrels worth and that's about we're about double that now but it's it's a barrel selection so we take about you know anywhere between you know 10 gallons from one barrel 20 gallons from other 100 from an pungent and make this micro blend and bring it together and uh and after the blend is homogenized put it back into neutral pungent for another six months with a lot of leaves so that extra time on leaves provides really round mouthful feel um it's pretty opulent wine um and just a, a little bit more of a kiss of um oak to the wine so yeah it's it's probably one of my favorite wines to be a part of um and then we have a blanc de blanc which we haven't released yet so in 2014 really in in earnest we started making a sparkling wine specifically farming for it and a lot of our chardonnay that we farmed for the sparkling wine went to our brut rosé and in 2015 it was our 20 year anniversary of our vineyard and bill stoller said hey i would like a blanc de blanc and i said why not of course yeah uh, so Your we wish is my command. absolutely, and so we did that in 2015, um, and we have yet to release it. So mm. just put it on the books that we are going to disgorge it in December, and it'll be released probably around this time next year. So stay tuned, come back and taste it. We'll be back for sure. Okay, so back up for a minute. Tell me more about the concrete and the that whole thing because I know we hear about this, but do you feel like? Concrete is the 
most purest form of the wine. I mean, I don't know if I, I said that correctly, but you know, if you put oak on it or if it's stainless, <clears throat> is concrete kind of that most pure way to produce it or, or is stainless more pure? Gosh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> That's why I do what I do. Oh, goodness. Um, You know, I... And I'm sure somebody will argue with me. Uh, I like... I I really like the concrete. I think there's something... I don't know if it's its purest form because because of the concrete, it does change the natural chemistry of the wine. It actually increases uh, the pH a little bit. And so I don't know if it's the absolute true expression of it. I think stainless steel kind of holds the wine in stasis. It's like makes it linear, it kind of holds it there. And there's the evolution is so different. If you weren't to do anything that's as it fermented, that's a, what it would be. Whereas the concrete, there's a natural evolution and, it, and, um, as, and the wine will change the longer you leave it in there. Even if you don't put it through ML, the pH is naturally going to be higher just simply based on the interaction that the wine has with the vessel, which is pretty compelling, much like a, an oak barrel, but it doesn't, the oak will impart, regard, even if it's not toasted, it will impart some kind of, some tannins that you're not necessarily going to smell, but you're going to taste. I think the aromatics and the texture from a concrete vessel is incredibly compelling because it's, it's certainly rounder, but it also imparts this minerality that is so specific. I think if you were, if you didn't know that it was from a concrete tank, you're like, oh, wow, there's something to this. And I can't really put my, my finger on it. But I think when you really get a chance to think about concrete and think about it as a vessel, you understand why it was used for the longest time. Now the concrete tanks that we have now, we, they're made in this ultrasonic mold. So that lessens the porosity. So we don't have to go in and use epoxy to, um, to line the tanks, which is what they used to do ages ago. Um, and it was actually quite dangerous to do that. Uh, but, and also, you know, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't feel right as a winemaker, uh, putting wines in a tank that had epoxy lining. So now the fact that our concrete tanks are put into this honest ultrasonic mold, they have less porosity. So we don't have to treat them. We just kind of um, treat them with a little bit of tartaric acid, which is an acid that's naturally derived in the grape anyway. So it kind of acts as a buffer. But as that kind of changes, the wine, um, and the longer you leave it in there, so we leave it in for almost 12 months, um, the wine kind of is, I don't know, showcases the vessel so incredibly. We're about to bottle our clonal Chardonnay. So we were asked really by um, our tasting room to showcase some wines um, it's more of you know, an educational series to showcase uh, what two different clones of Chardonnays look like. So we did Clone 76 and Clone 548. Um, and I, I think that people find both of these clones incredibly polarizing in the valley. Uh, I was just talking about clones with some, and you know, our French um, neighbors that are like, we don't care about clones. You know, it's all about the site. It's not about the clone. Whereas here in Oregon, we like to talk not only about our soil types, and but really about our clones quite a bit. So for us, our clone 76 has a really nice floral aspect and a nice minerality to it. Whereas our clone 548 is um, more like green grass, um, but not green as an underripe. It's just like this fresh characteristic um, kefir lime leaf and more tropical components. So I think 
having an example of two Charnays, two different clones fermented pretty much the same way in pretty much the same timing really shows what those indiv- that individual clonal material will do. And so usually um, winemakers will kind of take those bits and pieces and put it together and do a blend that will, like a reserve, that will that has all of our clonal material in it. So it's kind of the some of the parts coming together to create something really beautiful. But I think what we wanted to do is really show, you know, these individual aspects and show what they can do. Let's talk bubbles now, and I know this is kind of your baby, right? <clears throat> and what is it about the bubbles you make here that maybe is different than what we're tasting elsewhere? Uh, I think the fact that we can make site-specific bubbles and a vintage wine every year um, is pretty remarkable. I think everybody in the valley um, and everybody has their own identity when they make bubbles, and um, we all kind of stick to our own dogma on how we treat it. Uh, I've always loved sparkling wine, and so I think when I got into winemaking, I was like, I'm going to make this is what I'm going to do. And when I came to Stoller and they said, sure, make make a little bit, make 300 cases, and now it's grown up to 1,000 with the idea that we'll make certainly more than that uh but to have this to have old fine material to play with really is pretty special to make sparkling and not have it as maybe a, a byproduct of what you already do so we pick sites on our vineyard very specifically to farm our specifically for sparkling we crop it a little bit heavier um which we can do on this vineyard our vineyard um is very generous in terms of providing fruit so for me and thinking about sparkling i don't want to battle phenolics or tannins later i want to um because we are a warmer site i want to crop it really heavily i want to um not have to deal with things that i don't want to deal with later so um we got pretty high yields and we pick it anywhere between i think 17 and a half to 19 and a half bricks um, so early. It's always the first first thing that we bring in. Uh, the past couple of years, we've brought it in into September, which uh, the, in the beginning of September, which was glorious. But really, two, 2016, which will be our current release of our Brute Rosé shortly, um, was our earliest year on site. Stole our history. It was August 20th. So that was pretty early. It was actually during our club um, release party. So I think our club members got an extra show during that weekend because of it. We were bringing grapes down the hill. Uh, but for me, I think uh, we use all ne- neutral barrels uh, for our sparkling. Um, I think it provides a different richness to the wine. Um, and then we usually uh, we don't do any batonnage. Uh, we let it sit on leaves, um, just the way of the wine kind of breaking down the leaves that it has already. And then we tirage it pretty early. So, And I think as a wine... It, changes once it's in bottle uh, you get different characteristics so we really taste the wine every I don't know three months to see when we want to disgorge it and fortunately we have a right now we're working with an outside company to help us uh, disgorge so they'll uh, basically uh, take the bottles from us and we will decide when we want to do it but they've been very generous in timing so we can we don't have to do it all at once and say let it lie let's only do like a couple 
uh, or a couple hundred cases. Mm-hmm. And then we'll do another um, couple hundred cases in another six months. And that wine will continue to evolve and change on these. And then even at that point, we will... Uh, the dosage might be different. I think that's what's so interesting about tasting champagne um, and sparkling wine from, you know, producers that have been established for a long time. You look at the bottle, back at the bottle of wine, and they have different disgorging dates. I think what's so cool is that it could be the same wine, same vintage, even the same dosage, and then you look at the buck, and you're like, there's something different, but their disgorging dates may be like six months to a year different. And there's just a natural evolution of the wine that happens in bottle. Emergence of Chardonnay, sparkling wines. I don't want to say Pinot Noir is taking a back seat in Oregon, heaven forbid. But if you're like, okay, hey, we got this now, or I mean, can you? In terms can, of Pinot, yeah, can you ever even say that? I mean, no, absolutely not. <laughs> I think um, with this industry, you can't say that we've got this for anything. There's always gonna, you're always going to learn something. Uh, I think the more you kind of go down the rabbit hole the more you know that the less you know so things continually change our you continually change as a person your site continually changes our climate's changing everything's evolving so i don't think you can ever rest on your laurels and say no man we've got this be nice but then that's not why you get into winemaking that's kate Payne brown associate winemaker at stoller family estate I want to thank Kate for taking time to join us and Michelle Kaufman at Stoller for making this happen. In our next episode of Vintage, we'll head down the road to the winery where it all started for Bill Stoller, Shehalem, next time on Vintage. Vintage is a presentation of Feedback Media. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. 